Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So, for the past couple of months, I've been discussing William Shakespeare, specifically the historical William Shakespeare. What can we actually know, guess, or infer about the man who wrote these works that are so famous? What sort of man was he? his character, his life, his experiences. And as I've said before, there is very little that we can say with concrete certainty about William Shakespeare, but there are certain things that we can understand about him from his series of sonnets, the 154 sonnets that were published in 1609, which are, as I have argued previously, products of real personal relationships and experiences that are very emotional, very revealing, that are not only romantic and philosophical, but erotic, sexual, sometimes even raunchy. And the fact that we can read these poems today raises a looming question of how and why were they published? How could materials that are often quite shocking or even scandalous, how did they see print while Shakespeare was still around? And could this have happened with his permission or authorization? And I'm going to put forward my own theory about how and why this came about, that these very personal materials ended up being published in the way they were and at the time that they were. And then I'm going to go on and discuss the contents of the poems and particularly who the individuals addressed and described in the poems might have been. Can we come to a firm guess or at least a theory about who the young man was and who the so-called dark lady was, these two individuals with whom Shakespeare had romantic and sexual affairs. And then thirdly, I'm going to talk about what light the sonnets can shed on Shakespeare's other works, particularly his plays, right? How can we understand the characters and the events in the plays? What kind of meanings we might be able to draw out of them after having seen and examined the sonnets? And then lastly, I will give a thank you message for my patrons and encourage you, if you're not, to become a patron soon so that you can hear my last discussion of Shakespeare, which will be about the authorship question, right? The controversy over whether the works of Shakespeare might not have been really written by William Shakespeare. But I'm going to put that aside for now and just look at what we can know and understand from the sonnets and their publication in the context of Shakespeare's life and career. So as I said, there is this looming question that scholars have grappled with now for centuries. Why were these sonnets published? Did Shakespeare want this to happen? Did he allow it to happen? So the first appearance of any of Shakespeare's sonnets in print actually was in 1599, as I mentioned last time. Two of the sonnets, number 138 and number 144, those two appeared in a piratical, unauthorized short book called The Passionate Pilgrim, published in London in 1599, which is full of 
a whole variety of poems, most of which are considered spurious, not truly by Shakespeare. Some of them may be authentically Shakespearean, and it is generally agreed that those two sonnets that then also appear in print again later were authentically by Shakespeare. But the publisher of The Passionate Pilgrim was dishonest, an exploiter, a pirate of literature. And he published a further edition later on of The Passionate Pilgrim, in which he included some poems that he knew for a fact were actually by Thomas Haywood and not by Shakespeare. So there's no question that this was a dishonest and unauthorized publication. So this, of course, only further raises the question then of when 10 years later in 1609, the complete series of sonnets that we know today was printed. Was that an authorized edition or was it also piratical? So if we look at the 1609 book, it's in quarto form, meaning it's a small book made up of uh, folded over pages like the original cheap quick editions of his plays. It is titled simply Shakespeare's Sonnets. And as I said, it was published by Thomas Thorpe in London. And before it was printed, it was properly entered into the stationer's register, sort of formally uh, recording it as a book to be published. And inside, it actually has three parts or elements, each of which is important. It has a dedication that is signed by Thomas Thorpe. It then has the series of sonnets numbered from 1 to 154. And then finally, at the end, it has a long narrative poem called A Lover's Complaint. Now, if we look at the entire book, all of these parts, the dedication, the sonnets themselves, and A Lover's Complaint, there is a continuing pattern of vagueness, a lack of of names or precise details. Nobody is ever specifically clearly named in any part of the book, even in the dedication. There are no dates. There are no specific references to places. And so the book, therefore, has a mystery about it. And this raises the question, which may be important too, of whether the book, including the sonnets themselves, were edited by somebody, whether by the the author or another writer or by Thomas Thorpe, were edited for the purpose of privacy or secrecy, that maybe specific references that could pin down these poems to the particular people they're talking about or particular events were taken out. Maybe entire poems were left out, maybe lines were changed. But for whatever reason, we see a lack of clear details. And this has fed a sort of hunt, you could say, for not only the young man and the dark lady, but for anybody who could be connected to the creation and publication of these works. Was it printed with Shakespeare's permission? Well, this is an uncertain question. It has been debated for many years. For a long time, it was basically taken for granted that it must have been unauthorized, that this that these poems were surely obtained or stolen in some way and published by another dishonest dealer, as was the case with The Passionate Pilgrim. In more recent years, there's been more debate, more back and forth, and some argue that it was published with Shakespeare's knowledge and permission. 
but the preponderance of scholars all in all probably still lean more towards the no side. Okay, what is the evidence on either side? What are the arguments against Shakespeare's authorization and for it? Well, on the no side, for one thing, there's the dedication that opens the book, which, as I said, is signed T.T., meaning Thomas Thorpe, not William Shakespeare. And there is no reason to think that Shakespeare penned or approved of this dedication. And that is significant because Shakespeare had already published two previous authorized books of poetry, Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucrece, and both of them have personal dedications signed by Shakespeare. So this is one initial indication that Shakespeare did not authorize or oversee the publication of the Book of Sonnets. Literary theft and piracy were not uncommon at this time. You know, printing a popular book of poems could make you a good deal of money. It was fairly low overhead, big profit margin, especially if it was successful. And as I said before, this was clearly the case with another book, The Passionate Pilgrim, that included two of Shakespeare's sonnets. Another point is that when you look into the Book of Sonnets from 1609, there are many errors, corruptions, and misprints. And that is absolutely not true of Shakespeare's authorized editions of Venus and Adonis or The Rape of Lucrece. So this is another reason to suspect that Shakespeare did not participate or approve of this printing. Now, another major point that we have to consider in this debate that hasn't been discussed so much until very recent years is the final narrative poem that I mentioned before called A Lover's Complaint. So A Lover's Complaint is a long narrative verse poem describing a woman who has been seduced and you could say taken in by several men who has been offered marriage but then has been abandoned. So she is an aggrieved, betrayed woman This is a fairly common convention. There were many narrative poems published in, especially in the 1590s, around this theme of the the spurned female lover. And arguably, you could say that a lover's complaint might have been added into the book in order to give the woman's perspective, right? The woman in the sonnets is treated quite harshly and you could say, by our standards today, in a very misogynistic way. And maybe a lover's complaint is trying to sort of turn the perspective around and give her view that she has been ill-used. And remember, in the sonnets, it's clearly indicated that both the speaker and the young man have some sort of fling or affair with the lady. For many years, it was just accepted as a matter of course that Shakespeare wrote a lover's complaint. It's in the book that is labeled Shakespeare's Sonnets. It was simply accepted at face value. And indeed, there are, there are further similarities and concordances you can see. So it's, it's not without reason that people accepted that. But in recent years, it's been more and more disputed. There are many indications that call into question the authenticity of a lover's complaint as a work of Shakespeare to the degree that recently the Royal Shakespeare Company dropped it out of its edition of the complete works of Shakespeare. 
so one of the major bodies sort of conserving the legacy of Shakespeare, now considers it to be spurious. The style is quite different, and this is where stylometrics, this new growing field of mathematically analyzing the patterns of a writer's style, the, the choice of words, of phrases, of syntactical constructions, of verse patterns and meters, this field is coming more and more into play. And if you look at A Lover's Complaints stylometrically, it stands out from Shakespeare's other accepted works. It is full of many Latinisms, both Latinate root words and phrases mimicking Latin constructions. It has many unusual words that are not used by Shakespeare in any of his other known works. And so some in the 20th century argued for other authors, possibly the theologian John Davies, or the poet Ned Ward, who used a lot of similar words and phrases that you see in A Lover's Complaint, although Ned Ward was much more prolific, and there's a great deal of work by Ward, and so it can be easy to sort of match up anything to something appearing in Ned Ward, because he just produced more words that we can analyze today. So there have been arguments back and forth about whether one of these other authors might have really penned A Lover's Complaint, but none of them has really gained wide acceptance. But a more recent analysis, which I'll talk about more, by Saul Frampton, who's a scholar at Westminster University in Britain. Saul Frampton argues that the author was John Florio. So John Florio was an Italian humanist, originally from Sicily, who migrated to England, who became a translator, translating works between Italian and English, he also became a poet in his own right, and he was quite famous and respected in literary circles because he produced the first Italian-English dictionary, and in this way he helped to bring Italian literature into England and into the English language. So A Lover's Complaint matches up pretty well to the style of John Florio's other known writings, although it's uncertain because he was much less prolific. We don't have nearly as much material to test against, but it seems to fit, especially the Latinisms and Italianisms. Furthermore, John Florio knew and worked with Thomas Thorpe. For instance, in 1610, Thorpe dedicated a book to John Florio and thanked him for his help in procuring and readying manuscripts for publication. So, the clues that are available tend to point towards some other author, particularly Florio. Now, this is not certain. It is not proved, of course. This is not universally accepted, not as of yet. But we have to acknowledge, for one thing, that if Florio is the author of A Lover's Complaint, then it's impossible that Shakespeare gave permission and authorization for Thomas Thorpe's printing of the sonnets. It, to me at least, and I think to most Shakespeare scholars, for that matter, too, it is unthinkable that Shakespeare would have allowed his name to be attached to a book that included work by somebody else and work by someone else that is not as good. Pretty much any Shakespeare fan, whether you're an expert or not, can open up the book of sonnets and look at a lover's complaint and see it's just not as interesting, it's not as witty, it's not as multi-layered as Shakespeare's other poetry. So this, I think, casts even more doubt on the notion that Shakespeare authorized this edition. And lastly, this is sometimes pointed out 
but not always explicitly by scholars, that it's hard to imagine that Shakespeare could have authorized the publication of these sonnets when they are so often so private, when they are directly personally addressed to other people, to their recipients, right, who are Shakespeare's lovers, and he refers to them as his loves or lovers. And when they are, as I said before, raunchy and often deal with really taboo subjects, whether that be same-sex attraction or venereal disease. Furthermore, if we look at the trajectory of his career, these were printed in 1609, at which time Shakespeare was evidently at the height of his career. He was 45 years old. He had some success and notoriety, both as a poet and as a playwright. He had gotten some kind of royal patronage through belonging to the king's men, as they were then known. But he seems to have retired from this career very quickly after the publication of the sonnets. He seems to have moved back permanently to Stratford in 1610. And then the last reference to him as an author occurs in the works, as it happens, of John Davies in 1611. There are then no more references to him as a writer or a performer for the rest of his life until he died in 1616, and he does not seem to have produced any further literary works after The Tempest, which came no later than 1611. So more or less we can say within no more than two and a half years after the publication of the sonnets, Shakespeare, his career is over and he is no longer part of the London literary or theatrical world. So all in all, these sonnets, although we may be interested in them today, and we may love some of them today, they evidently did not help his career at all, and if anything, the timing suggests that they hurt his career. So for all of these reasons, people have tended through most of the years of reading and studying Shakespeare, people have tended to agree that he must not have authorized this edition. Well, why do some see it differently? What is the evidence on the other side, on the yes side? Well, for one thing, some people see this whole argument as a slander against Thomas Thorpe, who was pretty well reputed as a good, honorable, professional publisher, who worked actively with other great authors who had great regard for their works, particularly Ben Jonson. And we know that Jonson knew Shakespeare. He refers at one point, as I'll talk about in my next lecture about the authorship controversy, he refers to meeting Shakespeare in some way, in some capacity, and he says more than once in his memoirs that Shakespeare acted in two of his plays, in Sejanus and Every Man in His Humor. So if Johnson had worked with Thorpe, that would have given Thorpe sort of an entree to then meet and work with Shakespeare. Also, if we look internally into the content of the poems, as you should have heard from last time, there are constant references over and over again to promoting and preserving the beauty and fame of the young man. And probably all of us have heard that ending couplet of Sonnet 18, as long as men can breathe and eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. He clearly says again and again that he expects people to read these sonnets and to draw something from them. This tends to, again, argue on the yes side that Shakespeare did want publication. 
Thirdly, there is further, you could say, kind of internal external evidence contained in the clever ordering and numbering of the sonnets. Their sequence does not seem to be an accident. Not only do they trace out an apparently unfolding story or stories, but also the specific numbers seem to resonate with the content and layers of meaning in the poems. An obvious instance of this is sonnets that refer to the passage of time. And remember, this is one of the great obsessive themes that runs all through the sonnets, is the cycles of time. And poems that specifically comment on particular periods of time are then matched with the appropriate numbers. For instance, sonnet number 12 begins with the line, when I do count the clock that tells the time. And it talks about the passage of hours in the day, and there are 12 hours in the day. Also, sonnet 52, one of the most important, interesting, suggestive sonnets in the whole series, number 52, talks about the rare, seldom meetings between Shakespeare and his lover. And he likens these meetings to holidays spaced throughout the course of the year, of the calendar. And he says, therefore, are feasts so solemn and so rare, seldom coming in the long year set. And 52 is the number of weeks in the year. And another obvious example, sonnet number 60, which comes a little bit later. Sonnet number 60 famously starts with the lines, Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end. Right? And 60 minutes in an hour, or 60 seconds in a minute. So clearly there is very intentional play here between the messages of the sonnets about time and their numbering. Also, if we go further, there is, there's further number play that seems to possibly encode the dates when some of the sonnets were written. And a lot of these are, I would say, really a stretch, but a pretty strong example of this that I think does have an encoded meaning is sonnet number 99. So I mentioned last time there are only three poems in the whole series that don't follow the identical Shakespearean form, right? Of 14 lines comprising three quatrains and a final couplet. And one of those three exceptions is sonnet number 99. And in this sonnet, for some reason, there's an extra line added on to the first quatrain. So you have a set of five lines, a quatrain, a quatrain, and a couplet. Why is that line added in? Well, with that extra line, it's 15 lines long. Why would it be 15 lines long? Does it have something to do with the fact that it's number 99? Well, we know that at least some of the sonnets had been composed by no later than 1599 because two of them were printed in A Passionate Pilgrim. So it stands to reason and it makes sense when you look at where it falls into the sequence and how the stories unfold and when they probably these affairs probably took place in the 1590s. It makes sense that this is an intentional coded reference to the year 1599, which maybe is when the poem was composed, or even possibly when the whole series was completed and put into a sequence. 
Now, when we look at the sonnets to the lady, there are also maybe further encoded number plays going on here, but it's more arguable. I look at them and I see a pattern where sonnets that talk explicitly about the love triangle of the two men and the lady tend to have the number three in them, 133, 134, 143. Now, that could just be an accident. That could just be a coincidence. It's more debatable. However, a significant number that many have pointed out is the fact that there are 28 sonnets to the lady. And a lot of these sonnets talk about her sexuality, about her vagina. And so 28 could be a reference to the menstrual cycle. And that would be in keeping with Shakespeare's constant working of the numbers describing cycles of time into the poems. Now, if there is number play like this in the poems to the lady, which, as I said, is more arguable, well, that would indicate then that this numbering and sequencing was done after the whole series was finished, because there's no way that he could have known what the number of Sonnet 143 would be until he had all 154 sonnets done, and then he put them into their sequence, right? Because the the sonnets to the lady are appended on after the entire series to the man. So all in all, it certainly seems as if somebody took extreme care to work out the exact correct sequence and to make sure that every poem, or at least some of the poems, had precisely the right number to them. And probably that couldn't have been done until the entire sequence was finished and was being in some way finalized as a series. Now, of course, any number of people could have done this. Shakespeare could have done it. One of the addressees receiving the poems maybe could have done it. Maybe an editor or the publisher Thomas Thorpe himself might have done it. But as the poet Don Patterson, who I talked about before, as he says at one point, he considers this sequencing a sign of the hand of the author. And he says, quote, editors and publishers care, but they don't care that much, (laughs) right? This level of thought to encode meanings and resonances must have been done by Shakespeare himself. And this is what some scholars and other fans of the sonnets tend to argue today. Another point in favor of the idea that it was authorized is that some of the poems must have been revised at some point between 1599 and 1609. So as I said, we have those two cases of sonnet number 138 and 144 appearing in A Passionate Pilgrim in 1599. So that means at least some of the poems were composed at least 10 years or more before the collection was published by Thomas Thorpe in 1609. And furthermore, there are differences between those versions that appear in 1599 in A Passionate Pilgrim and the versions that you see in the 1609 collection. For instance, if we look at number 144, which I discussed last time, which begins, Two Loves I Have of Comfort and Despair, The closing couplet of that poem in A Passionate Pilgrim reads, The truth I shall not know, but live in doubt, till my bad angel fire my good one out. 
Now, in the 1609 edition, that penultimate line reads, Yet this shall I ne'er know, but live in doubt. So there's a subtle change here. He's, he's In the 1609 edition, it's saying something more specific. It's not, I won't know the truth, but I won't know this, meaning specifically I won't know if the young man is having sex with the lady or not. Why is there this difference between the two versions? Maybe it could have just been a small change due to error, corruption, mistakes in copying. This poem might have circulated in manuscript among several people, and there might have been changes or mistakes in copying before it eventually reached publication in A Passionate Pilgrim. It's unclear. Is this the author's hand making a revision or not? And if so, which one is the correct final version? Also, in the, in the version of number 144 in A Passionate Pilgrim, we see him refer to the lady seducing the young man with, quote, her fair pride, instead of what we see in the 1609 edition, which is her foul pride. So somewhere along the way, that word got switched to the opposite, fair or foul, foul to fair. Is it possible that maybe the printers of A Passionate Pilgrim were sort of cleaning up the language a bit and trying to make it less vituperative, less dark than Shakespeare's authentic version, right? Foul pride not only means there's something wrong with her character, it also is a suggestion, a hint at venereal disease, at an infected genitalia. So could this be a slightly cleaned up version? But when we look at sonnet number 138, this is a sonnet that begins with the line, When my love swears that she is made of truth. And it's a poem discussing how lovers will sort of tell little white lies and flatter one another, tell each other that they, they're still attractive, they're not aging. Well, sonnet number 138 is dramatically different in these two versions, in A Passionate Pilgrim versus the Thomas Thorpe edition. And these changes are clearly not just the result of copying error or corruption. These are clearly sweeping and intentional revisions. The first three lines are the same in both versions, but from that point onward, from the fourth line onward, every line is different, including entire rhymes being changed, right? So not only single words, but rhyme schemes get changed. For example, if we look at the third quatrain, which maybe has the most change, in The Passionate Pilgrim, the third quatrain reads, quote, But wherefore says my love that she is young? And wherefore say not I that I am old? O love's best habit is a soothing tongue, and age in love loves not to have years told. In the 1609 edition, that same quatrain reads, quote, but wherefore says she not she is unjust? And wherefore say not I that I am old? O love's best habit is in seeming trust, and age in love loves not to have years told. So again, we see a difference here in how the speaker talks about the lady. In The Passionate Pilgrim, he just says that she's pretending to be younger than she really is. Why doesn't she admit that she's not so young? In the 1609 edition, it says, wherefore, says she not, she is unjust. So he's accusing her of some sort of dishonesty or unfairness, right? And you could say again, in the 1609 edition, the portrayal of the lady is a little bit more harsh. So clearly, this is a substantial revision, right? It's dealing with 
both the the sound and vocabulary of the poem and the portrayal of the lady. And this raises the question, could anyone have done this kind of revision other than the author himself? So all in all, what we see is in the 1609 edition, we see a collection of poems, many of which, maybe even all of which, had been completed a decade or more earlier that had gone through most likely some process of revision between 1599 and 1609, and that had been carefully sequenced to be seen as a a meaningful, complete series. So in sum, we have a paradox here, and it's disputed among scholars whether this is an authorized edition or not, but still with most leaning towards no. But it's a strange and confusing situation. Why are there such clear, looming signs of careful preparation, but also at the same time, all of these signs in the dedication, in the errors, in the addition of a lover's complaint, all of these countervailing signs indicating that it wasn't authorized and that they were printed without Shakespeare's approval or knowledge? Well, I have a theory. (laughs) that there is a fairly simple explanation that in accordance with Occam's razor accounts with the existence of this strange, seemingly contradictory evidence in the simplest possible way. And it is this, it is that Shakespeare did prepare and order the poems with the expectation that they would be published, but only after he was dead. He had posthumous publication in mind. He did not want to see this highly personal and even scandalous material printed during his own lifetime, but he did want them to eventually be printed after his death for posterity. So what is the evidence that supports this explanation beyond what we've already discussed? Well, for one thing, there's internal evidence within the poems. So as you know, there are many repeated references to immortality, right, to giving eternal life and youth to the young man through the composition of the poems. But this audience that supposedly is going to read the poems and appreciate the beauty of the young man is always distant and abstract. He is concerned with impressing his message upon future generations. He is not talking about an immediate audience in the present time or even in his own lifetime. And the biggest example of this that really sets the tone, I think, for much of the entire book is sonnet number 17. So sonnet 17, I mentioned a bit last time, it is the last of the procreation sonnets, and it is clearly a transitional poem in which Shakespeare first discusses at length the idea of immortalizing the young man in verse. This is where he first sets forth this notion. He sort of briefly alludes to it in number 15, but 17 is the first one that really explores this theme of protecting the young man from aging and death through poetry. So let's look at sonnet number 17. Who will believe my verse in time to come if it were filled with your most high desarts? Though yet, heaven knows, it is but as a tomb which hides your life and shows not half your parts. If I could write the beauty of your eyes and in fresh numbers number all your graces, 
The age to come would say, This poet lies, such heavenly touches ne'er touched earthly faces. So should my papers, yellowed with their age, be scorned like old men of less truth than tongue, and your true rights be termed a poet's rage and stretched meter of an antique song. But were some child of yours alive that time, you should live twice, in it and in my rhyme. So Shakespeare still is sort of in a perfunctory way trying to drive home this notion of you should have children, right? But really most of the poem is developing this theme that then runs through all the rest of the series, that in the distant future, in the age to come, people will read these poems and appreciate your beauty. And he's, he refers to an antique song, and my paper's yellowed with their age. He's thinking about immortality through the ages. And eventually, in a later poem in Sonnet 55, he even refers to Judgment Day, right? Preserving the young man's beauty until eventually he is, he's resurrected as part of Judgment Day. There is no hint here that actual contemporaries who know either of these men personally ought to read these poems. That is beside the point, and in fact, I would argue the opposite. If we look a few poems later at sonnet number 20, he clearly says that the young man gets plenty of attention and admiration in the here and now. He says that you are beautiful and you steal men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. Right? So both men and women look at you and, and appreciate you and are attracted to you. And Shakespeare's not very happy about this. In fact, he has a lot of anxiety about other admirers. He's a bit of a jealous lover. And that comes out most dramatically in the rival poet episode, which I described in sonnets 78 through 86, where Shakespeare is, is nervous and a bit upset that some other writer has come along and started praising your beauty and your charm. So if anything, Shakespeare did not want to call attention to the fame and beauty of the young man in their actual here and now. Rather, he saw these poems as a means of conveying that message to future ages. But you might still ask, if these sonnets were so brilliant, and he put so much work into producing them, and he knew that they were beautiful, and he wanted people to read them, then wouldn't he have wanted them to be printed in his own life so he could enjoy the fame and career success? of having these poems widely read? Wouldn't he want those actual substantive benefits in his own life? Well, in response to that, first we have to remember that the sonnets didn't provide those things to him. Right? There is no sign that they were popular. There are no references to them at all from the last seven years of Shakespeare's life between their publication and his death in 1616. They don't seem to have made much money or have been discussed or spoken of, as far as anyone has ever found. There are only 13 surviving copies of the 1609 edition, so it you know, probably wasn't a very large run. And they were not printed again until 1640, until more than 30 years later. And not really not until the 18th century were they widely read or discussed by literary critics. 
And as I said before, there are probably reasons for why that happened, right? They violate the conventions and expectations of the sonnet genre. They are directed mostly towards a man. They are, again, raunchy, sometimes angry, harsh, and also cryptic and private. They refer to experiences, events, figures that are not named and that are sometimes quite confusing and even downright cryptic to read. So the sonnets didn't provide Shakespeare with a boost in his career, if anything, the opposite, and most likely Shakespeare knew that. He probably knew and expected that they wouldn't help him to gain patrons or readers, and that, if anything, they might harm his reputation, and even more than that, would very likely harm the reputation of the young man, whom the sonnets imply had a sexual affair with Shakespeare. Shakespeare, he'd been around the block. He knew his audience. He had had a great deal of success with Venus and Adonis. He had had some success with his plays. And he probably understood this was not marketable material. So this is a further reason why I would argue that Shakespeare, although he wanted them to be printed and read, he did not want it to happen during his own life. Now, you might still say, well, okay, but how do you know it's a matter of life and death? How do you know it was a matter of waiting till after he was dead and posthumous publication? Well, there's further, you could say, internal external evidence, specifically in the dedication. So let's discuss the dedication a little bit, which is something very interesting and mysterious that has been heavily debated and dissected for more than 100 years now. So the dedication to the book reads, quote, To the only begetter of these ensuing sonnets, Mr. W.H., all happiness and that eternity promised by our ever-living poet, wisheth the well-wishing adventurer in setting forth, T.T. And T.T. clearly is a sign-off by the publisher Thomas Thorpe. So this dedication is long, it's complicated, and it's quite mystifying. Many people, of course, have debated who is Mr. W.H. and what could be his relationship to this work. Is he, for one thing, is he the young man? Right? If he's the begetter of the sonnets, is he the young man to whom most of the poems are addressed? That seems to be what Thorpe, or whoever penned this dedication, is suggesting. But there's a great deal of ambiguity, so I'll talk some about the ambiguities in the dedication, and finally, the, the reason that I think it points towards posthumous publication. So for one thing, the dedication is addressed to the begetter of the sonnets. What does begetter mean? Well, it can just mean creator, right? in which case it seems to be saying Shakespeare, the person who made these sonnets. But then again, it says W.H., Right? Some have theorized, well, maybe they left off the S for some reason. So instead of WSH, which would be a normal way of saying Will Shakespeare, instead they left it out and it comes out as WH. But then again, Shakespeare is also the poet. And later on, we see this reference to the eternity promised by our poet. So if Shakespeare is the poet, then WH must be someone else. Is he the begetter in the sense of inspirer? Right? in the way that a man begets children, brings about their creation? Is hence Mr. W.H. the begetter who inspires and brings about the composition of the poems, in which case he must be the young man? 
That, of course, then raises the question, why is he specifically called the only begetter? When, as we know, some of the poems are to a lady, right? There's, there's more contradiction here. Thirdly, could begetter mean the obtainer or procurer? And it seems that sometimes in this period, the word begetter was used to mean someone who got something, who obtains it. Okay, so all of these things are possible. Could it be somehow the person who who acquired the poems from Shakespeare and got them to Thorpe to be published? Is he the young man? Is he somebody else? All of these are possible, but most tend to lean towards the notion that it's the inspirer of the poems, the muse, which is the young man. In that case, is Mr. W.H., is it someone's initials? Right? That seems to be the obvious implication. We're talking about somebody's initials. Or is it some other sort of code? Is it referring to somebody in some more cryptic or indirect way? Well, it wishes, the dedication wishes for Mr. W.H., quote, all happiness, which was a common phrase. It also appears in Shakespeare's dedication of the Rape of Lucrece. And then it says this eternity promised by our ever-living poet. So that's the second thing that... Thorpe is wishing for this young man. What is this eternity? Is it eternal life or immortality through the poems? Right? It seems that way because, again, Shakespeare keeps making this promise, right? Literally, in the poems. I am going to make you immortal and save you from death through the poetry. Right? That seems to make sense. But the phrase also clearly has strong religious overtones. It also seems to hint at eternity in the sense of eternal life and the eternal life that is promised through the gospel, right? And in that case, who is the ever-living poet? Well, poet, we tend to use it today to mean the author of poetry, right? But it also just means creator. That's what the original root is, is just the creator of something. In that case, you could understand this phrase as having a double meaning of, of, of the poet God who creates us and offers us eternal life through the gospel. But obviously the more clear, direct surface reference is just to Shakespeare. And then the dedication ends with this phrase, wisheth the well-wishing adventurer in setting forth. And this is a neat, you know, funny little Jacobian turn of phrase where you have the verb wisheth and then the subject, the adventurer. The adventurer is the one making this wish for Mr. W.H., so it makes explicit that these wishes are being expressed by the adventurer, and that can mean someone who goes on an adventure, right? And an adventurer setting forth is hinted at, right? But adventurer also commonly meant at this time a merchant or a business person undertaking a business venture. And for example, if you go to York, you can see the Merchant Adventurers Hall, which was the guild hall of the Merchants Guild. So the further meaning of that last phrase seems to be referring to Thomas Thorpe himself. He is the adventurer, and he is setting forth the book, right? To set something forth was commonly used to mean to publish it or put it up for sale. So all in all, we seem to be seeing Thomas Thorpe saying that he, in his action of publishing the book, is wishing these good things, eternity and happiness for Mr. W.H. So all of this is rather confusing, right? It has many points of ambiguity and equivocation. And it's possible that the dedication was intentionally oblique and ambiguous, maybe to cause a stir, to stir up intrigue and debate. Might also be for another reason, that it was 
written by in stages by more than one person, right? That maybe different people added on words or phrases or revised it before it was finally printed in the form that we see it. Either way, the style and vocabulary of the dedication are not particularly Shakespearean. And scholars tend to think that someone else, an author or or, or an editor, actually penned this dedication. And there are phrases in it that that don't appear anywhere in Shakespeare's known works. Uh, But before we get into that, the most important one is the use of the phrase ever-living. Okay, so so it refers to the eternity promised by our ever-living poet. And as I said before, that phrase has a lot of religious overtone, right? Reference to immortality and to the, the Christian idea of eternal life. And this phrase, ever-living, as in ever-living poet, was never used in the Elizabethan or Jacobian era. It was never used to refer to an actual living person. So... Previous Shakespearean scholars have pointed this out before, and it's sort of landed with a thud. No one really has a good explanation. Why is it that this phrase, ever-living, that was only ever used to refer to gods, deities, or immortal spirits, possibly the spirit of a dead person, was applied here to the poet, which in this book is, by implication, Shakespeare. Now, as I said, many people have pointed this out, and the scholar Diana Price, she argues that this is an indication that, in fact, William Shakespeare was not the real author of the poems, and that it was somebody else who was already dead by 1609. Now, I'm not going to get into that or discuss that now, but that uh, putting that aside, I think that there is a more direct and simpler explanation, a more parsimonious explanation of why it happened that that phrase is applied to the poet in this dedication. And that's that this dedication was probably originally composed with posthumous publication in mind, with the expectation that the book wasn't going to be published until after Shakespeare was dead. So the implication of this, if this theory holds water, the implication is that the dedication was first drafted in some form, with posthumous publication in mind. But then by the time it was actually printed by Thorpe, Thorpe had jumped the gun. He had gone ahead and published while Shakespeare was still alive, against the author's wishes or without his knowledge. And I think there is further internal evidence in the dedication that suggests that Thorpe further added onto the dedication because of the situation, because of the fact that he knew he was going against the author's express wishes. There is evidence, I think, of multiple drafts. This is a very long and ungainly dedication, with many clauses kind of tripping over each other. And particularly the final clause is superfluous. Right? There's no reason that the dedication couldn't simply read, quote, to the only begetter of these ensuing sonnets, Mr. W.H., all happiness, and that eternity promised by our ever-living poet. But for some reason, this further clause is added, wisheth the well-wishing adventurer in setting forth. Why would that be, that unnecessary final phrase, be added on? Well, for one thing, it spells out that the person expressing these wishes is Thorpe, the publisher, not anybody else, not the author, not an editor, 
but Thorpe. And it takes the form of a sort of apology or justification. He's insisting on his own good intentions. I'm doing this with well wishes and good intentions towards Mr. W.H. By implication, he's trying to say, I'm not doing this out of malice. I'm not setting forth this book with bad intentions to embarrass or harm anyone. But instead, as he makes clear, I'm doing it in accord with Shakespeare's wishes. I am trying to confer upon you that eternal life that the poet wants. Right? So the dedication can be seen as this kind of complex construction that is trying, where Thorpe is trying to convey the message that he is doing something good. He's not doing it out of malice. He's not doing it selfishly. He's trying to carry out Shakespeare's wish for the young man to be immortalized in verse. So I think that all in all, it makes the most sense to suppose that Thorpe has jumped the gun to publication prematurely, and he is trying to explain himself a bit, but without necessarily specifically pointing out why, right? Without spelling out the fact that he's going against the author's wishes, that he's acting prematurely, and that he may be causing embarrassment both to the author and to Mr. W.H., whoever Mr. W.H. is. Okay. So that being said, let's consider who is Mr. W.H. Is he the young man addressed in the sonnets? And either way, can we discern who the young man might have been? So this is something that's been discussed, of course, by many readers for centuries now. There are many possibilities that have been thrown out, but only two of them have really held up and tend to be the most commonly pointed to candidates for the identity of the young man. One of them is William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke, who was a young, sexy man about town, reputed to have many lovers and admirers. Furthermore, William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke, evidently helped to get books published. He was a patron and facilitator of literary publication. He was quite young, at the time of the writing of the sonnets. He was born 1580, so he would have been a teenager in the 1590s or reaching maturity by 1600. There is evidence, although he was very young for the subject matter of the sonnets, if we suppose that they were written in the 1590s, nonetheless, there are records showing that his parents tried very hard to get him to marry quite early on and tried to betroth him to a daughter of the Earl of Oxford, one of the most prominent high-status aristocrats at the English court. So that could fit then with the procreation sonnets, where it seems as if Shakespeare was commissioned to try to persuade someone to marry. And furthermore, he is named as a patron of the first folio, right? Ben Jonson and, and the other editors of the first folio of Shakespeare's works in 1623 specifically thank him as a patron. So at least by that time, he certainly was aware of Shakespeare and his works. And his initials are WH, right? William Herbert, Lord Pembroke. So he is considered a major candidate. The other one is Henry Rithesley, the Earl of Southampton, who also was young, but not as young as Lord Pembroke. He was born in 1573. 
He was a patron of literature and art, and he is named as the dedicatee of two earlier published poems by Shakespeare, right? His Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucrece, which were written around the same time or maybe a bit earlier than the sonnets. And in particular, the second dedication to Lord Southampton in The Rape of Lucrece expresses love, undying love, for Lord Southampton and wishes him all happiness, right? A phrase that, although it was common, it's still, there's a curious echo there in the dedication of the sonnets. He was considered to be not only good-looking, but according to the surviving miniature portrait of Lord Southampton, he was quite pretty, with uh, soft skin, sort of girlish features, and long hair. Furthermore, Henry Ridesley, for a time in the early 1590s, also refused to marry, went against his family's wishes, and refused a match to the granddaughter of Lord Burley, who was Queen Elizabeth's most important minister and official in these years. Later on, around 1600, he fell in love with and married a lady-in-waiting at Elizabeth's court. So could this possibly match the apparent bisexuality of the young man, where he has an affair with Shakespeare and then also with the Dark Lady? Could this Lady of Waiting have been the Dark Lady? All of this has been speculated, right? Henry Ridesley also got caught up in the Earl of Essex's rebellion that tried to overthrow Lord Burley and his government. And for this treason, he was imprisoned, sentenced to death, but then later the sentence was commuted to only life in prison. And after a few years, when Elizabeth died and James came to the throne in 1603, King James pardoned him and allowed him to be released from prison. Now this is significant because if we look back at sonnet number 107, which I mentioned before, it seems as if it may be alluding to the accession and coronation of King James. And... It says at the beginning, the first quatrain reads, quote, Not mine own fears, nor the prophetic soul of the wide world dreaming on things to come, can yet the lease of my true love control, supposed as forfeit to a confined doom. So there seems to be an allusion here in this poem, maybe to the coronation of James, and also maybe to the lover being imprisoned but then released. So it seems to possibly align with, with Henry Ridesley and his story. And if that is true, that could account for the strange discrepancy where so many of the poems to the young man seem as if they must have been written in the 1590s. But then you have Sonnet 107 that seems to come up much later that may be referring to events in 1603, 1604. Could it be that there's a long gap in time there because these are the years when Southampton was imprisoned? Okay, so all in all, there are many things working in favor of both of them. But there is also a problem with both of them. In the dedication, the young man is referred to as Mr. W.H., which means a man of some sort of status, like a knight or an arms-bearing gentleman. It was never used to refer to a noble lord like an earl, right? And both Herbert and Ridesley were earls. So it would have been highly inappropriate to re refer to either of them 
as Mr. W.H., even if you entertain the idea that the initials are switched and Henry Ridesley H.W. has been changed to W.H., it's highly inappropriate. Well, could this be just a further veiling, a sort of further trick to conceal the man's real identity? So could Mr. W.H. have been a way of sort of hinting to readers, I know who these poems are about, but I'm not going to give it away, and if called on it, that he was exposing or embarrassing one of these men, he could have some plausible deniability. No, 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 Mr. W.H. certainly isn't the Earl of Pembroke or the Earl of Southampton. Some have theorized that, but still does it risk insult, right? Could this have been seen as an insult, a dishonor to one of these young men to call him Mr.? Well, you know, maybe it really didn't matter because the damage was already being done just by printing the poems at all, right? Maybe Thorpe was just being reckless and didn't care at this point. But we also have to consider the possibility that maybe the young man was neither of them. Maybe it was some much more obscure person that no one has noted, who maybe can never be identified. And some have pointed out, such such as Joseph Pequigny and others before him, like Oscar Wilde, have pointed out that the young man seems as if he may have been an actor. He may have been some sort of performer that Shakespeare knew from the theatrical world. And there are clues to this, particularly in sonnet number 20, where Shakespeare addresses the young man and says, A woman's face with nature's own hand painted hast thou. So he's arguing that the young man has a sort of naturally feminine or female face, and he's comparing him against others who don't have a naturally feminine face, and so have to artificially paint themselves to look like women. So maybe on some level he's contrasting the young man with actors. And remember, in the 16th century, it was still illegal for women to perform on stage. So all female roles were played by men, in some way done up as women. So you could say here there's an implicit comparison being set up right away in Sonnet 20. But why would this mean that he's an actor? Well, the poem goes on to praise the young man's sort of beauty and charisma and describes him as, quote, a man in hue, all hues in his controlling. So he's using hue to mean color, right, complexion, but also appearance, persona, right? And he is a man in his appearance and persona. You could say his gender is male, right? But also all hues in his controlling. He can take on different appearances and personas. He's a master of taking on different roles, right? And finally, this man in hue, quote, steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. He has an audience watching him, captivated by him and by both his attractiveness and his mastery of different personas. So all these indications point towards the young man being a performer, an actor, and particularly one who played both male and female roles. And clearly Shakespeare is drawn to him and is attracted to him. And this raises the question of whether maybe Shakespeare was drawn to theater. I would speculate maybe he was drawn to theater to begin with because he was drawn to young androgynous men who performed in female roles. Well, there's an apparent contradiction here, a further evident paradox, right? How could he be both an actor and a nobleman? 
Because as I said before, there are many indications, especially in the procreation sonnets, that speak about his house, about his legacy and succession, and that strongly imply that he was a titled noble who had to carry on a noble line. A noble, a real titled noble, wouldn't have been caught dead on stage. It was highly disreputable to be associated with theater at all, let alone to be seen on stage as an actor. So there is a tension here, right? And you could say, well, maybe the actor references in Sonnet 20 are just metaphorical, and that may be true. But likewise, the references to him as a lord or nobleman might also just be metaphorical. There's no clear, definite indication of who he is, his name, his class status, or anything. So what we have is tension, conflicting metaphors, on the one hand as a titled noble, and on the other hand as an actor, right? And this tension goes unresolved in the poems themselves, but I'll go back to that later when we discuss who the young man may have been. All right, well, what are the arguments with these two notions in mind? that it may have been Herbert or Ridesley, or it may have been neither of them. What are the arguments on either side? Well, for Herbert, for one thing, as we said, his initials match, right? W.H., William Herbert. Furthermore, we can look at particular sonnets, such as sonnets 135 and 136, that make extended plays and puns on the name Will which was, of course, Will Shakespeare's own name. But let's look at what 135 and 136 say, keeping in mind the punning and the fact that will was also often used to mean genitalia, especially aroused genitalia, right? This could be called your will because it embodies your desire. So sonnets 135 and 136 are in the series addressed to the lady. And 135 says, quote, Whoever hath her wish, thou hast thy will, and will to boot, and will in overplus. More than enough am I that vex thee still to thy sweet will-making addition thus. Wilt thou, whose will is large and spacious, not once vouchsafe to hide my will in thine? Shall will in others seem right gracious, and in my will no fair acceptance shine? The sea, all water, yet receives rain still, and in abundance addeth to his store. So thou, being rich in will, add to thy will one will of mine, to make thy large will more. Let no unkind no, fair beseechers, kill. Think all but one, and me in that one will. So on the one hand, you can say, well, this is just punning on Will Shakespeare's own name and that he just thinks it's really hilarious that his name also means genitalia. And he's sort of begging the lady, uh, I'm just a Will like any other Will, so let me in. Let me have sex with you. But what's odd about this poem is that it comes right in the middle of a sequence of poems dealing with the love triangle between Shakespeare, the young man, and the lady. And as I said, like many of these poems, it has the number three in it. And it, again, seems to be calling on references to threeness. Whoever hath her wish, thou hast thy will, and will to boot, and will in overplus. He's talking about three wills, three sexual organs, all being somehow shoved together. And there are also many poems, including number 42, 
where Shakespeare writes to the young man addressing the love triangle. And he implies that somehow he and the young man are the same person. They're interchangeable. And if the young man gets to be with the lady, so does Shakespeare himself. The final couplet of Sonnet 42 to the young man says, quote, But here's the joy, my friend and I are one. Sweet flattery, then she loves but me alone. And that resonates then with this last quatrain in 135. So thou being rich in will, add to thy will one will of mine to make thy large will more. What is she adding into her will? Is it Shakespeare's will, meaning his penis? Or is it a will of mine, meaning the young man, who is also called Will? There's a triple punning going on here, right? Or there seems to be, in context, a triple punning. Shakespeare thinks it's so funny that both I and the young man, both of whom you've now had sex with, are both called Will. So with that in mind, let's just look at Sonnet 136, the next one. If thy soul check thee that I come so near, swear to thy blind soul that I was thy Will, and Will, thy soul knows, is admitted there. Will, meaning the young man, also has been admitted into your chamber, into your love life. Thus far for love, my love suit, sweet, fulfill. Will will fulfill the treasure of thy love. I fill it full with wills, and my will one. In things of great receipt, with ease we prove among a number, one is reckoned none. Then in the number let me pass untold, though in thy store's account I one must be. For nothing hold me, so it please thee hold that nothing me, a something sweet to thee. Make but my name thy love, and love that still and then thou lovest me, for my name is Will." So again, he's going wild with this punning on the fact that the lady has accepted a Will into her Will. And it's apparently not just punning on Will meaning genitals and Will meaning Will Shakespeare, but also Will, the person she is also currently having sex with, who somehow represents Shakespeare, is kind of his double or his extension, my will. Okay, so all of this seems, again, if we read the poems in this way, in context, it seems as if the young man is also called Will, which tends to militate again in favor of Herbert, right, the Earl of Pembroke, the first candidate. We also know that William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, had dealings specifically with Thomas Thorpe. As we said, Thorpe dedicated a book to John Florio. So John Florio comes into play in a very important way here. So Florio was a Renaissance humanist, Italian translator, right? Saul Frampton theorized that he actually wrote A Lover's Complaint. And at one point in 1610, Thomas Thorpe dedicated a book, an edition of Thomas Healy's Epictetus, his manual, to John Florio, and thanked Florio for securing the backing of William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke, for Healy's translation of John Hall's Discovery of a New World. And that book was entered into the Stationer's Register in January 1609, shortly before Shakespeare's sonnets 
So this suggests that Florio may have actually been the mastermind behind it all, and that he obtained both the poems and patronage from William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, to publish the book. And this further accords with the notion that William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, is Mr. W.H., the begetter of the sonnets, the obtainer and acquirer of the sonnets for publication, and also possibly the young man who inspired them. However, ironically, Saul Frampton, the scholar who puts forward this theory that John Florio is the linchpin of Thorpe, William Herbert, and the sonnets, he doesn't think that the young man is William Herbert. He thinks it's Henry Ridesley, Earl of Southampton. Why is that? How could he think that? You could say, well, if it was Southampton, then for some reason the initials must be switched, right? H.W., Henry Ridesley, was switched into W.H., But that's not what Frampton argues. Frampton believes that the young man is not the same person as Mr. W.H. Mr. W.H., the begetter of the sonnets, is Herbert, but the young man is Southampton. Why would he think that? Well, this goes back again to John Florio. So if we go back to 1594, right, back to 15 years before the sonnets were printed, Another very strange and cryptic poetic book was published in London. The title was Willoughby His Avisa, The True Picture of a Modest Maid and of a Chaste and Constant Wife. And this book tells the story of a woman, first a maiden and then a married woman, who resists the advances and harassment, really, of various bad men who want to seduce her into a false marriage or into adultery. This book was published under, it was published under a pseudonym. The supposed author of the preface is a pseudonym, and it claims that the actual manuscript of the poem was found in the papers of a young student named Henry Willoughby. Now, there was, in fact, an Oxford student at this time named Henry Willoughby, and Henry Willoughby was distantly connected to Shakespeare. His brother-in-law was a known friend of Shakespeare who is mentioned in Shakespeare's will. Or actually, I should say, this this brother-in-law mentions Shakespeare in his will. So they evidently had some connection. So maybe there's a tenuous social link between Shakespeare and this young Mr. Willoughby. But regardless, whether or not Willoughby actually wrote the poem and Some scholars today, such as Frampton, believe he did not. His name was being used falsely. Some other more prominent accomplished poet actually wrote it. Regardless, the author was clearly aware of Shakespeare because the prefatory poem discusses the mistreatment of women and it specifically mentions, quote, Shakespeare paints poor Lucrece's rape. So this is one of the few known references in print mentioning Shakespeare as as an author. So whoever wrote this book clearly knew of Shakespeare. But Saul Frampton argues that there's no evidence that Willoughby, Henry Willoughby, was a writer. This is probably another false name or false story. And that, in fact, if you look at the style, again, it matches John Florio. And it's full of Italian adages some of them still in Italian in the text, that match up to Florio's writings. Furthermore, we know that Florio had worked before with the publisher who printed Willoughby His Avisa. And the plot of a wife being pursued 
seduced by multiple men, but then betrayed and abandoned, parallels the storyline of A Lover's Complaint, which, as I said, Frampton argues was probably penned by Florio. So if we look into this book, it seems as if it was probably written by Florio, that Florio was already by this time aware of Shakespeare. And it describes this woman being pursued by one suitor and pursuer after another. One of them, the last one in the series, is called Henrico Willobago at one point, but then he's referred to again in the text simply as H.W., right? This H.W. tries to seduce the young lady. And the text explains that H.W. had, quote, a familiar friend, W.S., who not long before had tried the courtesy of the like passion and was now newly recovered from the like infection. And in viewing far off the course of this loving comedy, he determined to see whether it would sort to a happier end for this new player than it did for the old actor. So there are these repeated words in this passage that seem to allude to theater, right? A loving comedy. The young man is a new player. His friend W.S. is an old actor. All of this seems to track with the storyline in the sonnets, furthermore, right? Even down to the reference, the veiled reference to venereal disease, right? He's recovering from the infection. And the two men, W.S., an old actor, and H.W., a new player, seem as if they match up to Shakespeare and the young man, right? Where Shakespeare first had an affair with the lady, and then after it was over, then the young man pursued her and at least tried to have an affair with her, too. And the young H.W. is also described as an impulsive, charismatic young aristocrat, But, again, this phrase, this very suggestive phrase, is also applied to him, new player. So just as in the sonnets, we see again this tension, this strange combination, where on the one hand he's described as an aristocrat, but on the other as an actor or performer. So in all of these ways, it seems as if the story in in this book, in Willoughby His Avisa, is intentionally echoing the story that produced the sonnets. And in fact, the narrator says at one point that the story in this book is based on real life. He says, quote, Though the matter be handled poetically, yet there is something under these feigned names and shows that hath been done truly. So this is based, he's claiming it's based on real people and real events, but he's using fake names. And if that's true, then probably Henry Willoughby or Henrico Willobago is a fake name, right? But maybe H.W. and W.S. are the real initials of William Shakespeare and the young man. If H.W. is the young man, or at least it seems certainly very suggestive that H.W. is the young man, who could he be? Who could be both a young, impulsive, attractive aristocrat and a player? Well, at this point, we should note that sometimes plays, including Shakespearean plays, were put on privately at the royal court or at noble courts. And instead of being performed entirely by professional actors, they could be performed by some high-status 
courtiers, right? Because it, it wasn't so disreputable when it's not a public performance for money. And there is evidence that Henry Ridesley, the Earl of Southampton, did do this. And there is a record of Southampton playing a role in a performance of Love's Labor's Lost in the year 1605 for Queen Anne, the wife of King James. So although he was not a professional actor, there is some evidence that he was a performer. So Southampton seems as if he could match up to the persona of H.W. in Florio's book, and possibly also the young man in the sonnets. Furthermore, we know that, that Southampton knew John Florio because Florio acted as an Italian tutor for Southampton in 1591 and 92, right? So just two years then before this book, Willoughby His Avisa, was published in 1594. And in the meantime, we know that Southampton also had some kind of interaction with Shakespeare because in the same year, in 1594, the same year that Willoughby His Avisa was printed, Shakespeare also published The Rape of Lucrece and he dedicated Rape of Lucrece to Henry Ridesley, Earl of Southampton. And the dedication is very fulsome and effusive. It talks of love, love without end. He says that he is bound to your lordship. Okay, phrases that sound reminiscent of of the sonnets, Lord of my love. And so there's evidence that Shakespeare had some close personal relationship with the Earl of Southampton, or Southampton was his patron, or maybe both. And all of this was all happening in the early 1590s, at the same time that Willoughby His Avisa was published, at the same time that Florio had interaction with Southampton, and at the same time that certain plays, such as Romeo and Juliet, were composed that have lines and phrases, again, reminiscent of the sonnets. So, all in all, it looks as if the clues strongly point towards Henry Ridesley, Earl of Southampton. This is not certain. There are questions. There are problems. If that's the case, then why is Mr. W.H. in the dedication? Apparently, it's suggested as being the young man. Is that just a red herring? We can't know any of this for sure. But if you had to pick one person out, I would say that with all available evidence, the best candidate is Henry Ridesley, Earl of Southampton. Okay, now all of that being said, what about the main character in this weird book, Willoughby, his Avisa? If we accept that it seems that W.S. and H.W. are real people, and W.S. is probably a, a reference to Shakespeare, then who is Avisa? And if she is the woman who is pursued and betrayed by W.S. and H.W., is she the Dark Lady? So this question has been asked before. Could she be the Dark Lady, right? And this has been discussed by various scholars. But there is very, very little information hinting at who she is, right? She has this name, Aviza, which is probably not anybody's real name. It says at one point in the book that she lives in a house, quote, where hangs the badge of England's saint. And the patron saint of England, of course, is St. George. So some people have tried to find, okay, was there a St. George's house, maybe an inn or a brothel? Could the dark lady have been an innkeeper or a brothel keeper? That would seem to be in accordance with the reference in Sonnet 128 to her playing a harpsichord, right? That's the sort of thing you could have in the parlor 
of a public house? Maybe is it an allegory? The St. George figure hangs on royal palaces, and including some of the palaces that were inhabited in the 1590s by Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, who repeatedly refused marriage offers from many suitors. So could this all be some sort of allegory about Queen Elizabeth and her lovers and relationships? Very unclear, right? Now, some others have suggested, well, could Aviza in Florio's book, Willoughby His Aviza, who is portrayed as a, a loyal and long-suffering wife, could she be a depiction of Florio's own wife? Might this book be defending the character and reputation of his wife? And furthermore, could the wife of John Florio actually be the Dark Lady? Well, this then leads into a discussion of who's the Dark Lady, right? And can we identify her specifically? So let's talk about who the possible candidates are for the Dark Lady, which are actually more numerous than the possible candidates for the young man. Well, if Saul Frampton's theory holds water that the Aviza in, in this book is actually John Florio's own wife, then that suggests that she was the Dark Lady. And he's not the first person to suggest this. Other people have thought that Florio, he's an Italian, a writer, a translator. He clearly had some interaction with Thomas Thorpe and William Herbert. Maybe his wife was the Dark Lady, who seems to be a mature, possibly married woman. What do we know about John Florio's wife? Well, some writers said, reported, although it's not certain, that she was the sister of the famous writer Samuel Daniel. And if this is true, then she would have been an English woman from Wiltshire, which is where Samuel Daniel was from. She would have been both the sister of a famous poet and the wife of another poet and translator. She would have been very plugged in to the literary and intellectual scene of London. Furthermore, we know that her father, who was Samuel Daniel's father, was a music teacher. So there's connection there to music. Her first name is not recorded. It's actually unknown what her first name could have been. But Saul Frampton, in making his argument about John Florio and his connection to the sonnets, he actually researched in the surviving baptismal records in Wilton, the main town of Wiltshire, which is most likely where... Samuel Daniel and his family were from. And he finds in the registers from 1556 the baptism of a girl, and her name was Avis Daniel, A-V-I-S. So could Avisa in this book that was probably published by John Florio, is she simply a thinly veiled persona for his own wife, Avis Daniel? And in that case, is this mysterious woman, Avis Daniel Florio, is she the dark lady? That is one possibility. There are other strong possibilities that have been put forward. Another is Mary Fitton, who was a queen's lady-in-waiting for Queen Elizabeth, but who had an affair with William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke, who, remember, is the first major candidate for the young man, who had an affair with him and gave birth to a child fathered by William Herbert in 1601. So that's considered another possibility, a third is a very accomplished lady named Emilia Bassano Lanier. So Emilia Bassano Lanier was a young woman 
born of Venetian parents, so Italian-speaking parents from Venice who had migrated to England. She was born in 1569 and lived her life in England, but traveled very frequently back to Italy, particularly to Venice and the Veneto region around Venice. So this seems as if it might be connected to Shakespeare's obsession with Italy, the fact that he set about a third of his plays in Italy, including several in the Veneto, both in Venice and in Verona. Her parents may have been conversos. That's considered pretty likely that her parents were Venetians of Jewish ancestry who had converted to Christianity. And this could account for the very rich Judaic and Old Testament references in Shakespeare's plays. There seem to be references to her, particularly in Shakespeare's plays that are set in Venice. There's a character called Emilia in Othello, and there's a character named Bassanio in The Merchant of Venice. Right. So he seems to be aware of her and her Venetian background. And her father was a musical instrument maker who supplied musical instruments to the royal courts of Elizabeth and James. So she's linked to music. And furthermore, in Shakespeare's plays, you see many, many references to musical instruments of all kinds that are surprisingly precise and accurate. So again, many have speculated that she has a close connection to Shakespeare and influenced his work, and hence may have been the Dark Lady. She was also highly educated, had tutors for much of her life, and was, was an educated Renaissance humanist. She wrote religious poetry of her own, and in fact became the first woman to have her own book of poetry, which was a pietistic Christian verse, published in 1611. How could she have specifically known Shakespeare? Well, she had an unhappy marriage. She was married off to a man named Lanier. They were estranged. And she very early became the mistress of Henry Carey, the Lord Chamberlain. And Henry Carey, the Lord Chamberlain, was the patron of Shakespeare's acting troupe, the Lord Chamberlain's men. So many people have suggested that she greatly influenced Shakespeare that she contributed in some way to the plays, especially the sort of feminist ending speech in Othello, which appears in the version of Othello in the first folio, and that she may have been the dark lady because she was a mature woman. She was a woman who had sex outside of marriage. She was the Lord Chamberlain's mistress, and so was not of great reputation in terms of her sex life, but was learned, talented, musical, literary, and being Italian, she may have been dark-skinned, right? But there is this looming problem of color. The sonnets are obsessed with the dark lady's dark coloration, not only her hair and eyes, but her skin, right? Her black complexion, her, her brown breasts. This may not mean literally black, but certainly Shakespeare perceives her as dark and much darker in color than, say, the young man. So there's this problem of color, right? And we can say, well, Emilia Bassano was Italian in her heritage, but she is portrayed in her portrait as very light-skinned, very pale. And there is no description of her anywhere in the many people who mentioned her in their writings. There's no description of her being dark. As for Mary Fitton, the queen's lady-in-waiting, some have said that the sculptural bust of her was dark in color, but it does not survive. And the paintings of her do not show her as dark at all. 
And we have to consider the possibility, especially looking at the wording that Shakespeare uses to describe her over and over again, we have to consider that she was some more obscure woman who maybe hasn't been identified, who was of Middle Eastern or African descent. This was not unknown in England at this time, and indeed scholars have found hundreds of instances of so-called Ethiops or Moors in England in the 1600s, people who were described as having dark or black skin, who actually came from the Middle East or Africa or North Africa. There was trade, there was migration. Sometimes there was two-stop migration where people went to Portugal, and Portugal was a major trading partner of England. So some went to England as merchants, as diplomats, as traders. And some have theorized that possibly the Dark Lady might have been a brothel owner, who was sort of notorious in London and called Black Loose, okay? And this is not this is not a new idea. This was put forward by the biographer G.B. Harrison in 1933. Black Loose was a brothel owner. She was connected to the theater scene. Probably a lot of her clients were from the theater world. And she took part, she's recorded as taking part, referred to as Lucy Negro, taking part in the Christmas revels at the inns at court, in 1601-2. And this is the same time when Twelfth Night was first performed, and most likely it was put on by Shakespeare's own acting troupe. So this establishes a place where Shakespeare and Black Luce might have met. However, if she is the Dark Lady, that could not possibly be the first time that they met, because as we saw, two poems addressed to the Dark Lady were already published in 1599. So if they knew each other, it must have predated the Christmas Revels of 1601-2. But I would say, and maybe we'll get to this later, that it's probably not a coincidence. If Black Luce was the Dark Lady, it's not an accident that she was involved in the staging of Twelfth Night. So what can we take from all of this history altogether? What does this maybe tell us about Shakespeare? Well, all in all, we don't know who the young man was for certain, but it looks very possible that Pembroke may have been Mr. W.H., while Southampton was the young man addressed in the poems. Maybe the publishers deliberately threw us off and sort of misled by the carefully constructed equivocation in the dedication. But we may simply never know, right? The sonnets are carefully worded and carefully presented and maybe edited in a way to avoid clear identification. So we'll probably never know for sure, and maybe both of these people are people we've never heard of who don't otherwise survive in the record. So if people in 1609 couldn't tell who these people were, maybe we'll never know, right? The value here in examining the sonnets how they were written, who they were written to, how they were published, is not necessarily in figuring out the secret identities, although that's very appealing, right? That's maybe not the real value. Rather, the value is in seeing what Shakespeare thought was important and meaningful in these relationships that he had, and what light they can shed on how he lived his life and how he composed the plays as well. I believe that they shed light on his relationships to the plays, and that we can tell from the sonnets that there are particular ways, specific limited ways, in which we can connect the plays to his real life. I mentioned already before Henry IV, Part I, right, where there's this speech by Prince Hal, the young, charming 
Prince Hal that is very close to sonnets 33, 34, and 35. And if we look at this play of Henry IV, there's a constant tension running through the play as to whether Hal will remain close to his sort of boisterous, disreputable tavern companions, or if he will leave them, abandon them, especially once he becomes king. That is a major question running all through the plays, and it is first addressed in that speech by Hal that so closely echoes the sonnets. And in this way, we can suppose that maybe Shakespeare saw himself as being like these friends and companions of Hal, who clearly are also in love with him, Falstaff and Poins, his younger friend Poins. Maybe this is a way that Shakespeare was working out and dramatizing his own feelings of anxiety about whether his relationship with the young man would last and whether he was getting too old to be with this young man, which is an anxiety we see constantly running through, especially the later poems, to the young man. So now we can start to get this fuller picture of how Shakespeare's emotional life informed his drama. Now there's another major theme running through the sonnets, mainly the sonnets to the man, that also runs all through Shakespeare's plays, especially the comedies which is Shakespeare's fascination with androgyny and gender ambiguity. Okay, so we see again in the sonnets, we see in Sonnet 20, the young man is called the master mistress of my passion. He is alluring while combining qualities of male and female. Again, in Sonnet 55, he's likened to both Helen of Troy and Adonis at once. He somehow represents both male and female perfection combined. And we have to consider these poems then together with the context of the theater world in which we know Shakespeare was active. Women could not perform. Many of the actors in these troops were young men who dressed up and played the parts of girls and women. And if we consider that Shakespeare is so drawn to this master mistress of his passion, maybe this is also why he was drawn to actors and the theater. There's hardly any praise that anyone has ever found of Shakespeare as an actor. People praised him as a writer, for his poetry first and for his plays second. No one ever seems to have said he was a good actor. <laughs> so what was he doing there in the theater world? Something drew him there and led him to become a theatrical writer, not simply a poet. And we can compare this then to, for instance, Christopher Marlowe, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare and was in fact more accomplished than Shakespeare was as of the time of his death. And Marlowe was widely rumored to be homosexual, to prefer boys, although you know we can't know this for sure firsthand, but he was spoken of that way. And he explicitly wrote about homosexual affairs, especially in Edward II. So if this is true, if Shakespeare was drawn to theater partly because of his sexual attraction to particular other men, he wouldn't be so out of the norm. And all of this, I think, puts a new dimension of meaning into the frequent gender play and gender disguising in Shakespeare's comedies. This comes in all kinds of different forms. For instance, in Twelfth Night, a play I already mentioned before, you have a male 
highborn character, the Duke Orsino, who falls in love with a young lady, Viola, while she is successfully disguised as a man and has taken on a male persona and male name, Cesario. So in this case, you have a man falling in love with a woman who is of the female sex, but who has taken on a male gender. So these two people who are drawn to each other and who have romantic scenes together are of opposite sexes, but the same gender. Now in the same play, a woman, Olivia, also falls in love with Cesario on the understanding that he's a man. So in this case, you've got a different situation within the same play where a woman is falling in love with a person who is of the same sex as her, but the opposite gender. And so, you know, whether you want to call any of this homosexual or not, you've got situations with people attracted to people of the same sex. You've got situations with people attracted to people of a different sex, but the same gender. All of this is happening within Twelfth Night. And then there are other instances like in As You Like It, where you have the characters Phoebe, who is a woman, and Rosalind, another woman who disguises herself as a man and is taken to be a man. And Phoebe falls in love with Rosalind in the persona of a man. And furthermore, this male persona that Rosalind adopts is named Ganymede. And Ganymede is the name, if you know your Greek mythology, Ganymede is the name of Zeus's young boy lover. So the plotline of As You Like It, again, you have the gender confusion. You have these same-sex matches forming and dissolving. The plotline also involves love poems and love letters of unclear authorship, right? So you have confusion about who is writing love poetry to whom. And at one point, Phoebe gives a soliloquy in which she speaks about Ganymede and sort of complains about him. But she observes that he, he has a good appearance. And Phoebe says, quote, he'll make a proper man. The best thing in him is his complexion. And faster than his tongue did make offense, his eye did heal it up. So there's this fascination with his coloration, his complexion. And she goes on to say there was a pretty redness in his lip, a little riper and more lusty, red than that mixed in his cheek. "'Twas just the difference betwixt the constant red and mingled damask." So again, this obsession with the color of the lover and the references to the redness of his lips, like in the sonnets to the lady, "'Coral is more red than my lips red.'" And finally, she complains about his behavior and says, "'For what had he to do to chide at me? "'He said mine eyes were black and my hair black.'" So now again, the contrast between the fair, even feminine coloration of the man, who's really a woman, and the dark coloration of the lady. Okay, all these resonances and echoes of the sonnets. But in both cases, both in Twelfth Night and in As You Like It, you have confusion and deception as to the gender and sex of the loved person. And all of this confusion and double meaning would have been further compounded then by the fact that all of these female characters like Viola, Olivia, Rosalind, Phoebe were all being played by men. So when Orsino falls in love with Olivia, what you would have seen and acted on stage was a man disguised as a woman disguised as a man. 
And this is the person that Orsino is then falling in love with. And when she changes and reveals her true gender, what you really would have seen would have been a man switching his costume and gender presentation from male to female. So there are all these kinds of double meanings, plays upon plays of gender confusion. And Shakespeare, I think, actually jokes about this explicitly in some plays, like in Two Gentlemen of Verona. So in Two Gentlemen of Verona, you have the heroine Julia, who is in love with a man, and she sets out on the road to pursue him, to pursue this man as he travels. And as she does so, she disguises herself as a man as well. So as Julia is traveling in disguise as a man, she meets up with her love rival, with another woman named Sylvia, that the man is also in love with. And there's this odd, ironic conversation between Julia, disguised as a man, and Sylvia, who is of the female gender. And at one point, Sylvia questions Julia about Julia. They converse about who is this first lady that the man is originally in love with. What sort of woman is she? What does she look like? And Julia says, well, you know, she looks basically like me. She's about my height. And I know that she's about my height because, as she says, quote, at Pentecost, when all our pageants of delight were played, our youth got me to play the woman's part. And I was trimmed in Madame Julia's gown, which served me as fit by all men's judgments as if the garment had been made for me. So on one level, there's this cute irony here of, oh, well, I know that Julia is my size because I fit well into her clothes. And clearly that would be the case because she is Julia. They're one and the same. But also at the same time, this monologue would have been given by a young male actor who basically is saying, yeah, look at me. Don't I look very good in women's clothes? <laughs> I'm very good at this, this gender bending, right? So there's a clear meta joke here of the boy actor playing a girl playing a boy. And Samuel Schoenbaum, in his biography of Shakespeare, actually speculates that this joke may have been a further reference to Shakespeare's own childhood and his experience in putting on and participating in plays like Christmas time plays and Easter passion plays, where you, again, would have had young boys playing women. Uh, so maybe this is Shakespeare also making a little joke about himself and his own gender bending. Okay, all of this is, is cute and witty and funny, right? And there's, there's a lot of punning. But furthermore, this gender play has clear sexual and erotic undertones. So if we go back to Twelfth Night again, we can see instances here where Shakespeare is clearly drawing out the sort of erotic excitement of androgyny and gender bending. So in Twelfth Night, at one point, Orsino praises Cesario as being attractive because he's feminine and girlish. And he believes that Cesario being feminine will be able to attract the attentions of Olivia and other women. And he at one point praises Cesario's high feminine voice. And he says, quote, Dear lad, believe it. Diana's lip is not more smooth and rubious. Thy small pipe is as the maiden's organ, shrill and sound, and all is semblative a woman's part. 
So there's a lot of double meaning here. He's speaking about Cesario's beautiful mouth, which is feminine and smooth, and his voice. But he refers to his voice as thy small pipe. Okay, there's clearly a double meaning here, both of his voice coming out of his throat and his penis, right? Your, your small penis is similar to the maiden's organ, right? And the maiden's organ is both, again, her voice like a pipe organ, but also, you know, what's a maiden's organ, right? The, her, her female parts, right? Shrill and sound all assemblative a woman's part, right? And a woman's part has this double meaning again of body parts, maybe her female organs, but also a woman's part, a woman's role in a play. <laughs> and so Orsino here is praising the supposed beauty of Cesario, whom he takes to be an effeminate young man. But also the subtext is he's praising this young feminine actor who is very good at coming across as a girl. Okay. And Orsino, by all points, seems to really like the androgyny, right? He's, he's, he's very drawn to Cesario. And eventually he learns that actually Cesario is female, that he's been in disguise as a male. So he learns the truth of Viola's identity. But he continues in this final scene, he continues to call her Cesario and refers to her as a boy. So he still likes this male gender identity attached to Viola. And he eventually says, give me thy hand and let me see thee in thy woman's weeds. Right? And weeds means clothing here. So, okay, I want to see you now dressed as, as a woman. So in this way, you could see this as a return to heterosexual normality. Right? I want you to go back to your correct feminine gender. But on stage... The actor playing Orsino would be saying to the actor playing Viola, he'd be saying, all right, now I want to see you dress as a girl. <laughs> there is no return to heterosexual normality here, right? The gender confusion continues and compounds and compounds. And I think that this gender confusion clearly reflects Shakespeare's own confusion about his confused feelings and his confused attractions. Who is he drawn to and why? And you see his ambivalence and his even his anguish, I think, come through in, in these comedies. And they clearly echo sonnets like 20 and 130, both of which I already quoted before, which are sonnets where Shakespeare is working through his own conflicting feelings about who he's attracted to and who he isn't and why and what to do about it. Why am I drawn to this beautiful young man and to this hypersexual, experienced, dark-colored woman? And the big giveaway, I think there are many indications that Twelfth Night is inspired in many ways by the sonnets and that he's kind of riffing on and dramatizing the same dilemmas as the sonnets. And a big giveaway is, again, in the last scene, when Orsino finally proposes marriage to Viola. And remember, Viola has been posing as a young man and acting as a servant to Orsino. And so Orsino says, And since you called me master for so long, here is my hand. You shall from this time be your master's mistress. <laughs> Just like in that shocking opening of Sonnet 20, the master mistress of my passion. 
And also in Twelfth Night, there are more straightforward same-sex attractions and relationships that also echo the sonnets and the male-male love that you see represented in the sonnets. So in Twelfth Night, Viola also has a brother named Sebastian. And like Viola, Sebastian also has been shipwrecked, but has been saved. And he's saved by a man named Antonio. And Antonio clearly falls in love with Sebastian. He's obsessed with him. He follows him around everywhere he goes. And he's finally questioned, why do you do this? And he says, quote, I could not stay behind you. My desire more sharp than filed steel did spur me forth. Which I think closely recalls Sonnet 50, where Shakespeare talks about riding a horse as a metaphor for his sexual relationship with the young man. And the horse's groaning is said to be, quote, more sharp to me than spurring to his side. So in all of these ways, I think you can see the sonnets most likely were written first, right? Twelfth Night was not composed until 1601 to 2. And most of the sonnets, scholars agree, were already written well before that. And Henry IV, Part One, was probably 1597, and it draws on even earlier poems, right, 33, 34, 35. And in all of these ways, I think you can see the sonnets as a kind of rough draft, a sort of first stab where Shakespeare is trying to work through his confused romantic and sexual feelings, which then supply material for the plays. And so all in all, in combination, when you look at the sonnets and the plays together, I think you get a deeper, more human view of Shakespeare. Clearly, he is saucy and mischievous and witty, and he loves, he loves sexual predicaments. You know, drag and gender confusion is always funny, right? Just look at Some Like It Hot and Tootsie, right? Drag and gender deception is a great theme for comedy. But you also see, I think, in this light, you see... Shakespeare in his comedies as a confused, vulnerable, and even anguished person, right, who is trying to somehow display and work out his confused feelings, but in a veiled way, through false scenarios, false characters in the comedies, and through circumlocution, vagueness in the sonnets which I think, again, most likely he did want to be read because he knew they were great poetry and he loved them, but not until after he was dead. So thank you so much for listening. I know this has been a long discussion, but I hope it's been worth it. And if you want to hear my last installment, please become a patron. It'll be on Patreon. Uh, Join in at any amount. And I want to thank my many patrons. I'm now up to 60 patrons, 57 of them currently in good standing. And I know that at this point I have patrons in at least six different countries, uh, the United States, Canada, Australia, India, Sweden, and Serbia. I'm sure there are others that I'm missing. If you haven't introduced yourself, please message me on Patreon or email historiansplaining at gmail.com. Tell me about yourself, where you are, what you like or don't. And I want to thank my patrons, starting off with the biggest contributors who have given the most to the podcast over its lifetime. And those are 
Carl Biagetti, Ellen Siskind, Ken Muller, Michael Biagetti, Dan Hernandez, Judy Siskind, John Sullivan, Ozzy Elowich, Christine Pacheco, Carrie Feibel, Gail and Jim Elowich, Joseph Murray, Brooke Meachin, David Burnaby, Karen Fagan, Rob Balgley, Kirill Chapeznikov, Adam Kath, Jeffrey Schulenberger, and John. And then further, thank all my other current patrons as well which include Will, Rebecca Mann, Peter Goldstein, Christine Gilani, David Lavery, Susan Marsh, Douglas Horgan, Amandeep Boyer, Colin Gorey, Richard Murray, Julia M., Slate Mills, Karen Plaschutznig, Jeannie Lyons, Benjamin Newcomb-Groyser, Kweku, Paul is East of the Pecos, Steve Hamlet, Ariel A. Duncan, Michael Sokolovsky, June, Ricky Canavan-Wagner, Heather Anderson, Christopher Grant, Takir Sadiq, Shamant Jila, Joe, David Aslanian, Martin Casey, Chris Hoffman, Joel Star Avalos, Kirsten Lamb, ZMK5, LS, Ichiba, Andrew Deldano, Andrew Smith, Mike Coffey, Alex Muller, Monica Kuniyoshi, and Henrik Bjerksa. And those last three, I just want to remind to please update your information on Patreon. Patreon says that your payment was declined. So Alex Muller, Monica Kuniyoshi, and Henrik Bjerksa, thank you so much for your support, but please fix that if you want to hear my next installment right when it's posted. So thank you again so much, everyone. I hope to hear more from you, and have happy holidays. Happy holidays.